learn how to think and argue like a lawyer. And if you haven't taken a pre-law class, or if you ha even if you have taken a pre-law class, you still haven't had as much training as a first-year law student. I haven't gone to law school, but I've learned it through um, hard work and observation and a lot of guest speakers. And I'll try to teach you how to think like a lawyer, even if you're never going to be a lawyer, because A, it's a really good intellectual exercise. It's, it's the kind of experience that will improve your mind and improve your thinking. Yes. No, this is more specific. Uh, second, if, should you want to think about whether you want to go to law school, it'll introduce you to the kind of thing you'll be getting yourself into. Uh, and although at American law schools we use the common law system based on case precedents, and we're going to be reading as much civil law as common law, if not more civil law, in this class, in some ways even reading codes as opposed to reading cases uh, requires the interpretation of rules, the application of facts, and the comparison of one set of facts to another set of facts. As you will see when we get into the heart of the class, although cases are the precedents that are creating the rules that bind a particular factual situation to the law in the English post-colonies, the common law system, uh, and there are no cases that are precedents formally, legally binding in the civil law system, you'll see, notice that the text will tell you that cases are still incredibly influential. It's a distinction with a difference, to be sure, because any judge in a civil law system can depart from a case if he or she wants to. But generally, for a variety of reasons, tradition, practice, promotion within the judge bureaucracy, because in civil law systems, the judges, it's a career civil service position. And you get promoted by being regarded as a good judge. And a good judge is probably one that toes the line on cases. So although the formal structure is different, the functions are very similar. And by uh, giving you that statement uh, that I just gave you, let me emphasize uh, something that's in the reading for today in the introduction, which is in political science, as opposed to law school, when we use the comparative method that we talked about last time, we're using categories that professors make up and other people make up that follow function rather than the name of the term in reality. No magic markers. Doggone it. Anyone happen to have one? I'll have to bring them normally. Anyway, function, I would be writing it on the board not so much to, to, to tell you how to spell it, but so to emphasize its crucial importance. In this class, in so, oh, excellent, thank you. I'll give it back. Um, in any social science, there can be a term used in society, and there can be a term in the classroom. And the classroom term often is not the same. Sometimes it is the same. Right? Uh, but for example, the three branches of the US government are? Judicial, legislative, executive. Does that describe the functions of those three branches? Not entirely. Not entirely. Why? Because it's so much more extensive than just judicial or executive. It's more extensive. What does another explanation, even more? I think that's certainly true. Um, they do things other than those three things. But what else explains why the executive branch, the name of the executive branch, doesn't describe exactly what the executive branch does? Because they still have to answer to the other two branches on some level. Well, they're checks and balances. But answering, I guess, is that's right. Answering is not just legislating, executing, and adjudicating or judging. Um, more to the point, the executive branch legislates, right? The executive branch writes regulations on laws, right? And who is the most powerful legislator in the United States? Speaker of the House, is that right? Who is the most powerful legislator in the United States? The president, why? And he can veto bills, and even more important than vetoing, executive 
numbers. No, I already mentioned that one. That's very subtle, but um, my, my, my question is looking for a more obvious answer. The opposite of vetoing is? Passing. Signing the bill, right? You can't have a law unless the president signs it. So the president has much more power than any senator or congressperson. So the executive branch doesn't just execute. It writes regulations. It indicates good faith by going along with it, but to be uh, most clear about it. The president, if he doesn't sign the bill, then it takes two-thirds of both houses to override the veto, which is to say you only need uh, one-third plus one vote, or 34 votes in the Senate and the equivalent in the House for the president's veto to be upheld. So the president is the most powerful legislature. Therefore, to say that the the executive branch is the, is the part of the government that executes, the legislative branch is the that legislates, and the judicial branch is the branch that ju adjudicates or judges is wrong from a functional point of view. Because the president has more power than certainly any senator or congressperson. Now, the president may, as an executive branch, may not be a bigger legislator than the legislative branch, because the legislative branch holds hearings, writes bills, makes compromises, and all that sort of thing. But we can certainly say that it's not true to say that the executive branch is the only branch of government uh, that legislates, that ex executes. Uh, the Supreme Court might execute, certainly the judicial branch of the US government executes when the judge gives an order for something to be done and finds that the people don't do it. Quite often, a judge will order a city, county government is the typical example, in receivership. And we had judges that ran school systems, runs garbage collection, um, takes over cities. Now, the judge doesn't run it day to day. He or she appoints someone to do it, but it's the ju judicial branch that is forming that function. So what I'm pointing out here is one of the first things to get under your belt from the comparative method in political science and in this course in terms of legal systems is that uh, the name may or may not indicate the function. But what we're really interested in as political scientists, as opposed to law students, and we'll wear both hats in this class, but as uh, political scientists, we want to understand how society works and what is the role of the legal system in society. And therefore, we look at what is the function. So as you read the introduction in this book, you probably heard or read various parts that emphasized uh, norms, rules. They didn't use the word laws quite often. The reason they use the word laws and norms is not just to make our life complicated, but also to connote. Connote means to suggest, to imply that there's a difference between function and, and name. Okay? And the, diff the point of it is that law does more than just provide a set of rules. And among the things that laws do in society are, number one, to tell stories. If you read the chapter, uh, it's not just talking about the trial we saw on TV, uh, but it also raises uh, our attention in the criminal law, let's say, to that which our culture over time, our, call it our political culture, has decided is the most uh, terrible thing that happened. Or at least that which the government considers to be the most terrible in public life. There are a lot of things the government could punish that it doesn't punish. And there are things the government punished that some people would say they shouldn't bother doing. But the fact that it's sanctioned in a criminal manner, for example, would indicate that at least for the time being, the society thinks this is very bad. And the worse the punishment, the worse it is. But we also hear stories, for example, of things that people don't like about the judicial system. And I mentioned a few last time, uh, the ongoing controversies, three strikes and you're out. Do you give, keep people in prison without proper medical care? Is it going to cost more or less money uh, if we let people out of prison? Uh, and there's stories, of course, regarding the law of individuals who are so important. 
the U.S. Supreme Court, as you know, is a very important institution in the American political system because it does have not the last say, because in some sense, politics goes on forever. Congress can respond to what the Supreme Court decides, but at least with respect to a specific controversy, it has the final word. And of course, you know, if there's a, it's a constitutional matter, uh, then the Congress has to respond in a way that doesn't violate, violate the Constitution. More complicated than that, because sometimes the Supreme Court can say something is unconstitutional, but all the Congress has to do is write a new law, and it's automatically constitutional. In other circumstances, rewriting the law more or less the same way would be forbidden. That's one of the many complicated facts of just constitutional law. But the stories of the Supreme Court are important because the Supreme Court decides, basically, when the majority has its way, as represented by its legislatures, and when the majority does not have its way. And one of the points of the Supreme Court is to protect minorities, to protect processes, and con to conform with the U.S. Constitution. And another way stories are really important is the justices themselves, because these nine men and women have so much power, we like to hear what, where they come from, how they think. And uh, perhaps no one gets more attention, at least up until about five years ago. I, it seems to be a little bit less, but our, our fellow Georgian, Clarence Thomas, has a very, very interesting story. Growing up in Savannah um, to a teenage mom, his grandfather adopts him, sends him to Catholic school. He rebels. I met him in college. He was in law school. Um, I didn't know who he was at the time. But there was this guy in combat boots and army fatigues, and he was spouting the revolution, and we're going to take over the world. And then he went to uh, study for the priesthood at 16. And on the night that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, one of his fellow clergy in a training uh, said, I hope he dies. And Clarence, that was one of the most important points of Clarence Thomas's life. Because that, he led him to, to leave the priesthood. His grandfather disowned him. He said, you let me down. Because the one thing he told Clarence Thomas when he went to seminary in Kansas is, you make sure you finish. You don't have to go to the priesthood, but make sure you finish. And he rebelled some more. And he went to Holy Cross. He was an honor student. He went to Yale Law School, and he was an honor student. And finally, uh, he couldn't get a job from Yale Law School. Yale Law School, which has produced so many famous people in recent history. Um, Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court, Bill and Hillary Clinton, and so on and so forth. Uh, he came out, and nobody would hire him. Until six or eight months after his college, Senator Danforth, who was then Attorney General of Missouri, hired him for $10,000 a year. And he put a little sticker on his diploma that said, 15 cents is what he said his Yale Law School diploma was worth. And he then began to think, you know, I thought I got into Yale because I succeeded on everything. I had absolutely nothing as a kid. I was self-educated. I went to the Carnegie Library in Savannah. The Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie donated these libraries all around the country. It was a place where black Americans could, you know, they can't take your knowledge away from you, you know. They can be prejudiced against you. This is, you know, during Jim Crow. He's only a couple years older than me, about 60. Um, and he said, you know, I can learn, but they can't take that away from me. And he excelled at everything he ever did in life, and then nobody would hire him from Yale Law School. And he said, you know what? I'm against affirmative action. Now, I'm not saying you should be for or against affirmative action, and I'm not saying Clarence Thomas is a good judge or a bad judge, but it's interesting to see where he's coming from, because then... He said, from now on, I'm going to make it on my own merits. I'm going to think for myself. And I'm coming home to my grandfather, Myers Anderson, who was one of the most fierce disciplinarians any kid would ever <laughs> fear to have as a parent. Um, and so he's basically stayed where he, in the place where he said he grew up after he was adopted, I don't know, about 9 or 10, 12 years old, uh, until his father uh, his grandfather kicked him out of the house at the age of 16, 17, after he 
dropped out in 1968 when Martin Luther King was killed. And other of the members of the Supreme Court have very interesting life stories as well, some not quite so uh, impoverished as a kid. In Pinpoint, which I guess is the neighborhood of Savannah, I guess it's one of the poorest areas of the state. Um, and you know, for whatever you think of Clarence Thomas as you know, perhaps the most long-serving justice in history, as he probably will be if he doesn't, you know, lives a normal lifespan, and one of the most conservative justices in history, he's an individual, right? He doesn't ask questions. He gets criticized. They say he's they assume he's so stupid. And yet, you know, he's written as many opinions for the Supreme Court as any other judge has ever written for the amount of time he's been on, over 350 opinions. And, you know, that's putting your stuff. It's one thing to write a paper for a professor. It's quite another thing to write it for the history of law school and law professors. And the fact that most judges in, in U.S. Supreme Court history did not ask a lot of questions at hearings. It's only been in the media age when suddenly, you know, justices, you know, feel like they want to get in the Supreme Court. And although they don't have TV cameras, they do have audio casts. And you can listen online on oye.com, I think, anyway, O-Y-E-Z, has all the oral arguments on audio. And all of a sudden, people have hammed it up for the media. And as you know, during the Anita Hill controversy, he regarded the hearing as what he called infamously or famously the high-tech lynching, which was an incredibly powerful argument uh, used against him by Anita Hill uh, in a controversy that raised the consciousness of Americans about uh, domestic and sexual harassment and violence. Not violence, but harassment. Okay, uh, so that's stories as being an important role or function of the legal system. And I mentioned earlier the importance of uh, highlighting what is, is crucial. And related to that is conflict resolution. By the way, when I say crucial, I mean you know the values of society, right? We consider some disputes public, we consider some disputes private, some actions very criminal and very blameworthy, others not so blameworthy. Um, and then conflict resolution, right? We have court systems to provide a method of saying enough, or this is the end of this. This is how we resolve it. We've had a process. It's kind of a ritualistic process, extremely imperfect. But nevertheless, it's meant to follow procedures, so it's not arbitrary. And having gone through that dance, if you want to call it that, we say, this is the ruling hammer goes down and that's it and off the person goes either not guilty or guilty or you're gonna pay this money you're not gonna pay milled and the purpose of this process is when there is a dispute instead of using firearms or having a duel we have prescribed procedures with discretion for the judge on ruling on punishment in the case of criminal trials or paying money or not and injunctions which are orders <coughs> Uh, to regulate civil conflicts, and that's it. We don't go into coup d'etats, we don't have political turmoil, we don't uh, occupy the streets, and so forth. If you look around the world, you look at countries that don't have very strong legal systems. They tend to have uh, judges that are get bribed, or they don't have resources for the courts to have proper records, or there's very limited judicial access. In the United States, of course, it's hard for poor people to pay for a lawyer, but at least in criminal defense you get a public defender, and a public defender, of course, can't give you the services that a rich person can pay for the trials that go on and on and on as the country focuses on these stories about these high-profile criminal cases. So you look around the world, the countries that have a lot of political turbulence almost always have a judiciary, and for that matter, uh, a legislative branch 
which is under suspicion of arbitrariness, bribery, coercion, armed intimidation, and so forth. Yes? Yeah. Um, like, contributing like corrupt legal system, does it, does it also relate to, like, Economic status, also? Of course, absolutely. Uh, that it, it takes resources to pay for courts, right? It takes resources to pay for prisons. If the United States can't properly pay for its legal system, at least according to critics, how much more difficult would it be for a poor country to pay for a legal system? Uh, one of the major dilemmas of doing a transition to a democracy is the importance of the judiciary to develop the rule of law when you don't have enough money to provide courts with proper records where the society doesn't have enough money to hire lawyers to represent both sides and the government isn't going to pay for it either. So yes, absolutely. It's one of the simple reasons why on average poor countries are not really ready or cannot sustain democracy and are susceptible to coups, uh, armed threats, and the like. The importance of conflict resolution uh, as a function uh, isn't to say that the courts are the only or even necessarily the most important conflict resolution mechanism in society. What might be another important conflict resolution method? Thinking of the society as a society. Anybody? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the U.S., there's like more informal ways, like mediation or arbitration. Okay, like but and your arbitration and mediation are formal ways, though less formal than courts. Right. Right. Uh, if you have a civil dispute, you can go to trial. But if you go to either an arbitrator or a mediator. Arbitration is a situation where you have a very quick process and you're, you agree by, unless there's some uh, malprocedure, you agree to live by whatever the arbitrator says, this is the resolution. And you make a contract to do it. A mediator is someone who mediates a negotiation that is, suggests compromises on both sides which they are free to disagree with, as opposed to an arbitration which would say, here's the solution, you've got to do this. Okay? And you can only go to court in either circumstance, especially in arbitration, if there's been some foul play on part of the process. But I'm thinking more generally, how does society resolve conflict in any country? Yeah. War. War. Um, I hope we don't solve a conflict in the United States by war, do we? I mean, I know we, we picked a war with Iraq and Afghanistan. But um, do we go to war? We have some vigilantes. We have terrorists, Timothy McVeigh. Uh, we have gone to war in exterminating the Native American population, along with disease and other uh, forms that were used during the colonial expansion of the United States, what we call manifest destiny in school. At least that's what they taught me. Um, so we did go to war, and, and we did go to war in the Civil War, which is one of the worst wars in history. But I don't think we, war is a normal conflict resolution process inside the United States. In international politics, where we don't have a world court with binding jurisdiction for all countries, war is more often. But even in international politics, I would argue, as Lewis Henkin has argued, that most countries of the world follow international law most of the time. That war legally is a last resort and only in self-defense. Yeah. Elections. Elections is certainly a conflict resolution process. It's part of the way of figuring out how to allocate resources uh, through the legislative branch and the presidency. It's also a way of making policy. And that, you know, the fact that we hold the election is a legitimating device which makes people say, well, at least we had an election, we don't have a military coup. So that, I say that, that's a very good answer. Yeah? I was thinking, I thought conflict resolution was one of the factors of politics in general. Like politics was a, a way to resolve conflict. Yeah, these are all examples of political processes. Sometimes political systems decrease conflict by channeling uh, disputes, um, and others increase conflict. It's also fair to say that 
uh, conflict is part of life. All societies have conflict. Uh, what political systems that work do is channel that conflict into formal and informal processes so that we don't resort to violence or extra-legal, non-legal approaches. The modern state adopts the law as the way to resolve specific conflicts among individuals and groups for where the rule is already established. And legislative process is perhaps the most important way society resolves conflicts <coughs> over how much to allocate and what new rules to make. But of course, that's not literally true. But I'm thinking even broader. How do we resolve conflict in society? Or not? Well, anyone? Discussion or relief groups? Absolutely right. Discussion and what? And like any sort of relief groups that are out there, like, or like interest groups, like, I don't know, maybe, uh, I mean, for a conflict, I mean, definitely on a larger scale, uh, like, you know, like Red Cross and stuff like that, or like, so you mentioned two things, non-governmental organizations, yeah. and what was the first one? Discussion, right? Discussion. Yeah, discussion, right? We talk. And sometimes talk escalates the conflict, and sometimes talk uh, gets it out. I, I, there's a Freudian term called um, catharsis. Um, you know, married couples that scream at each other all the time, they get it out of their system. Once it's out of their system, then they can go on. Sounds really unpleasant, but actually, you know, compared to married couples that never scream at each other and write the divorce papers, after three or four years, because they're quietly behaving well, you know, who's to say that screaming is so bad? I mean, it's very unpleasant and terrible for people who have to listen to it, but if it is a catharsis, that is, lets out your emotion from a pragmatic point of view, I mean, it's not ideal, obviously, it's better not to have conflicts. Um, Obviously, non-governmental organizations, to the extent that they provide services from mediation uh, to <coughs> providing first aid in an emergency, can help reduce conflict. Right now in Haiti, there's a horrible earthquake. Perhaps you all saw some of the pictures that came out. A country that has suffered more from tropical storms and an occasional earthquake than just about any country in the Caribbean. Um, and the United States has sent in humanitarian relief. Uh, and Bill Clinton is the UN Special Representative for Haiti on behalf of Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General. One of the reasons the United States is paying for non-governmental relief agencies like the Red Cross, if you want to give money, you can give money to the Red Cross for Haiti, um, is quite frankly, the United States doesn't want Haiti to erupt in violence. Because if there's not enough food and emergency services, people might start stealing from each other out of desperation, or maybe out of malice. Um, I think, you know, yes? I was thinking one of the reasons also that America may provide aid because um, Haiti actually provides exports and workforce. And, you know, I guess, uh, I guess you provide aid through government because you need them, actually. I'm having trouble hearing you. I'm sorry. I was just saying that Haiti provides workforce. Well, I mean, that, that's the, uh, we could argue about that one. Um, the amount of factories and the two assembly plants in Port-au-Prince employ, you know, certainly no more than 10,000 people. So that's like nothing. Um, and Haiti doesn't export anymore because I would say that USAID ruined their agriculture by dumping cheap rice in the country and putting all the rice farmers out of the Artibonit Valley out of business. Um, but, you know, you could say that, you know, the United States likes having cheap labor all around the world, and one more country with cheap labor allows American capital to piss, outsource its production and on and on. But this is a little bit beyond the framework of this class. Um, one other major function of the legal system that's emphasized in the reading uh, is, you know, it helps us come up with 
a way of understanding ourselves. By studying the law, and, and in general, the United States and the law in other countries, uh, we actually can spend more time figuring out where we're coming from. You know, I, I just asked this question about conflict resolution. The question that I thought is most significant, because I think the most important forms of cultural conflict resolution in a society is its culture and the ways it deals with conflict on an everyday family basis or in neighborhoods, tribes, communal organizations, churches, and schools. There are lots of conflicts out there. There's all kinds of per interpersonal conflicts. The law doesn't get involved in a specific conflict unless it reaches the level of a divorce or an assault or something of that nature. Now, it's true the fact that the law says it's not going to get involved is another way of encouraging people to resolve their conflicts outside the court. And that cultural approach was so obvious to me, and yet it wasn't so obvious to you. And the reason it wasn't so obvious to you, if I'm being right in saying so, is that it's so you take it for granted. You don't notice it. Right? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the family and uh, the way the culture tries to have people resolve disputes, either by talking it out or just ignoring each other, not being on speaking terms, but avoiding each other so there's no more conflict. Whatever the case may be, uh, we have uh, a way of dealing with conflict that is so obvious we couldn't even say it in class. Now, by comparing the United States, let's say, with any other country of the world, typically countries in past history that didn't have formal court systems, you could say that uh, countries without formal court systems only dealt with major crimes by shunning or avoiding the person, which is a typical way, stigmatizing the person, but not incarcerating him or her, putting them in prison. So uh, that gives us insights. We see what we don't ordinarily see by looking at something that's different. The book quotes uh, the historian Brodel, who said, as a French historian, I learned more about France by spending some time in London. And I don't necessarily learn a whole lot about London, but I sure as heck notice things about France that I never noticed before. And I, I think that when I went to abroad for the first time in my life was right after I graduated from high school, I suddenly discovered things about my own country because everything, a little subtle differences, made me realize things happening in the United States that I just took for granted without even noticing them. You know, if you walk up the right side of the staircase, right? If you go to a country where they don't walk up the right side of the staircase, you say, huh, I walk up the right side of the staircase. Maybe that's not important, but you know, that says, you know, you got cultures have rules about where it's customary to walk so that you don't crash into each other. Certainly in driving, you know, the British colonies, most of them drive on the left-hand side. Some of them have switched to the right because they can sell more cars that way, or at least they don't have to make special cars for driving on the left. Uh, and, you know, that's an arbitrary rule. The point is to have a rule, either on the left or the right, so that everybody knows what the rule is so we don't have car crashes. <coughs> Um, or if we go back in time and we look at the roads and we say there are fewer roads, how do they decide where these roads go? And it's said that in Atlanta the roads are built where the Native Americans walked, which tended to be on the top of ridges so that when it rained it would be dry and not muddy. And that explains why a lot of the older roads in Atlanta are curvy and also a little bit higher up. Because we built our roads on top of where the Native Americans had their roads. But sometimes in recent time, you know, we have roads going through one area or the other, uh, and they get sometimes tear down people's homes to build roads. And that has, says a lot about political power and who has the ability to move the law in their direction. So One of the functions of law, and one of the benefits of studying law, is to figure out not only the values of society, but also who has power. And how does the legal system protect the power of people who have it, and how does the legal system 
also change the power distribution in some ways from what it might have otherwise been. Power is a fact of life. People have political power and people don't have as much political power. Uh, the person who determined which way the road goes was probably the most powerful person in 1500, 1700, or 2010. And that may have been from brute force, it may have been from land holdings, it may have been because nobody else cared and you drove your wagon through that area if the wheel had been invented then. Uh, if you look at the American legal system and you see, ask, you can ask yourself critically, is the legal system one that tends to reduce the inequality of power or increase the inequality of power or maintains the existing power structure? <coughs> Does it protect some groups more than other groups? And then you can ask yourself, if it is the legal system, what is it about the legal system? Is it because of laws written in Congress by congresspersons who receive campaign contributions from interest groups, i.e. non-governmental organizations? Or is it because voters mobilize in large numbers and the fact that poor people vote less often, even though they have stand to benefit the most, might explain why poor people may not get a fair shake, or maybe poor people do get a fair shake, <coughs> or maybe they don't. But the point is, uh, those with interests have resources to go mobilize in the Congress, to lobby the president and its bureaucracies, and to have court cases to try to advocate a viewpoint. It's interesting that in the United States in the last 30 years or so, there's been a huge rise in litigation because it's cheaper to have a lawsuit, even though litigation is very expensive in this country compared to all other countries in the world. It's still cheaper than trying to give campaign contributions to 454 congresspersons and 100 senators, even with the limitations uh, that are imposed on how much you can give. So in looking at the law, we also want to see you know, who's Whose interests are behind the law? Whose power is behind the law? And does the law work against those people occasionally or not? Now, last time we also talked about the comparative method. And we want to think about both the parts of the legal system and the whole. We talked last time about looking for differences among similar cases to explain the causes of the differences. And we also talked about looking at dissimilar cases and looking for similarities. That's something you should get really deep in your head. Try to memorize it now, right? Similar cases, you're looking for differences to try and identify different factors that explain the different causes, that explain the differences. Different cases, you're looking for similarities that would indicate similar outcomes and therefore have similar <coughs> causes. But what is the unit of analysis? In some cases, the question might be civil law systems versus common law systems. In some comparisons, it might be the courts in one country versus the courts in, in another country. Or it might be an area of law, environmental law in two countries. Okay, So let me give you an example. Environmental law, right? The United States has, by international comparisons, pretty good protections for water, toxic chemicals, and air pollution, and almost no controls, though, on carbon burning uh, into the atmosphere. And uh, China has even fewer controls. But China has an economy that's booming, that seems to be recession-proof, and is arguing, you see, our dictatorship, although they don't call it that, our People's Republic, you know, is much better because we have strong, robust economic growth while the capitalist systems are all lazy, pump-priming money back to the banks who caused the problem in the first place. So China and the United States did not agree to cutbacks at Copenhagen in December on the production of carbon fuels. Now, if we're going to compare these two cases, are they similar or different? China and the United States. They're different. Why are they different? Because uh, we live in a democracy. They live in a okay, it's true that in terms of the political system, we're completely different. In terms of policies at Copenhagen, are we similar or different? Yeah. 
Well, we won't get to the reasons, but we're basically similar, right? We both opposed any formal targets on the production of carbon dioxide. So in this particular example, if the question is environmental policy on the burning of carbon fuels, we're similar. If the question is environmental policy generally, we're different because we have very strong controls in air, water, and toxic chemical pollution. So you look at the effect that you're looking at and say, are the two countries similar or different? In terms of uh, Copenhagen, China and United States are similar. In terms of air, water, and toxic chemicals, we're different. Now you might look at the different political characteristics of the two countries if you're looking at similar outcomes. Or you might, sorry, let me, I said that wrong. If you're looking Two, uh, two countries with similarities, you're looking for differences. So we're trying to figure out why it is that China, in spite of all our differences, has the same attitude towards Copenhagen, at least at that moment in time in December, as the United States. And I think the answer is because both countries value economic growth more than a whole lot of other things like controlling pollution. Or maybe the United States cares about growth, but China cares about growth, and a single dictatorship decides it without checks and balances. And the United States, the trade associations, the uh, coal and oil burning electric utility companies, and the auto industry that burns gasoline, which is still how they uh, will get uh, most cars around, and even the electric car will still rely on electricity, which for the most part re relies on non-nuclear energy and non-hydroelectric power, but rather coal and oil, that we can say that essentially uh, the politics of the United States right now produces elected representatives, the majority of whom take contributions from the Edison Electric Institute and whatever the oil company trade association is called. Uh, and essentially that's who pays for their campaigns and that's who better butters their bread and they got campaign contributions because they favored those interest, industry interests and so the laws coming out of Congress reflects those interests and those power so for the time being as of last month we see similarities in spite of the big differences in public opinion and it may be for different reasons as you said suggest now, I just gave you an explanation. It may not be the right explanation. Maybe some of you disagree with my explanations. How do we try to make a case for my explanation being convincing or not being convincing? Facts is a short way of putting it. Yeah. Sorry? Somebody say something? to see what happens in the future. I'm asking a more general question. In social science, we try to mimic natural science. So in social science, because politics is not biology, and politics, it doesn't happen the same way in every single situation, we can't have a natural experiment. Remember, we talked about this on Monday. We don't have a test tube situation. But we still mimic the method. But we can never prove, at least in the way natural science, proves, and then of course there are those who say natural science can't prove anything either, depending on what your assumptions are. But in social science, we make a case for a proposition by testing hypotheses. Now what does that mean? Uh, it's, it's very hard and complicated to, to understand what that is, and I'm not going to teach it to you today in, in part, but let me say the following, that the way you try to make a case is you try to make the case wrong. So you ask the question, if it really is campaign contributions from interest groups that has made a different country, the United States, from China into a similar outcome, then we would expect in the future and in the past that every time major contributions were given, that the legislators always voted the way the contributions were given, and they, they went in a way that contradicted the interests of the environment. 
And if we do this hypothesis test, we can disconfirm that hypothesis because in the 60s and especially the 70s and 80s, we had lots of environmental legislation, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and the Toxic Chemical Control Act, or whatever it's called, which led to industry groups, in spite of large campaign contributions, losing the votes in Congress. And the reason was because the American public wanted clean water, air, and so forth. It's also a time of social foment, foment the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, Women's Movement. Lots of things were changing. And so we can say, at least under certain circumstances, if the American public really wants change, they can defeat interest groups. Now we can say, but that may be, these may be the exceptions that prove the rule. Because the rule is, in, and we reformulate the rule and make a different proposition, which is, in the absence of any strong public preferences or intense feelings or one-sided views in public opinion, some combination that we can't quite say, but combination of intensity on the issue and one-sidedness on the issue in the American public, the interest groups are going to get their way most of the time. Now, why don't Americans care? Well, Americans drive cars. They use more gadgets. I don't know the statistic, but in terms of all these gadgets that have emerged in the last 20 years, as a result of semiconductors, iPods and cell phones and computers, we're consuming, just from those gadgets, twice as much electricity as we did, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. And you know, cleaning the environment is expensive. You can be dirty and rich or clean and poor. The most beautiful country I ever went to was Vietnam. The northern part was never developed, and it's beautiful and clean and poor. South Vietnam is developed and dirty and ugly and rich by comparison. Countrysides are beautiful and poor. Urban centers, you know, have poor parts to them, but you know, have this incredible prosperity in their downtowns. So it's a back and forth process, right? You make a proposition. Then you challenge the proposition by saying, how can I disconfirm it? You look at situations where it didn't happen the way your proposition said it happened. And then you reformulate your proposition to be a little bit more specific and accurate. And that's hypothesis testing in a nutshell. Um, but there'll be more to it than that. But what I want to try to teach you, train you, introduce you to in terms of social science thinking as opposed to legal thinking is testing out these hypotheses, doing the back and forth on propositions, trying to disconfirm your own hypothesis. And when you honestly find exceptions, try to figure out what is the significance of those exceptions in making your propositions. All right, that's all I'm going to say in terms of the introduction in here. Well, next class, we'll get to more to the heart of it. Let's turn to transitional justice the article on the internet, which I admit is a very difficult article for those of you who have no exposure to this, but it certainly gives us a great sense of the role of the law and justice in transitional situations. Basically, transitional justice is the study of what to do about a former regime when a government makes a transition from conflict to post-conflict. And typically, that is a transition to democracy, or at least a nominal democracy. <laughs> this is important because uh, between 1978 and 1991, uh, more than 60% of the world's countries moved from dictatorship to democracy. And most of these countries had to deal with what is called the torturer's problem. That is, the previous regime was a dictatorship. It tortured a lot of people, considered to be enemies of the state. Uh, it also murdered a lot of people extrajudicially. And those people are still around. Uh, we have a choice. We can forgive them and move on. Or we can prosecute them and send a signal that impunity will no longer be tolerated, impunity being defined as the tradition in a country where everyone gets away with major crimes. Now, the reason why, why don't new governments always prosecute the other side, particularly after a regime change? To establish this power? Why do they not? Oh, why do they not? Okay. 
Okay, the reason they don't is twofold. First, usually the previous regime people are still around, sometimes institutionally in the army, the interior ministry, the secret police, and they say, you do this, we'll kill you. And they do. Or we'll have a coup d'etat. And one of the countries that really tried to do this in a big way, Argentina, was mentioned prominently in the title article as the country who in 1983, when Raul Alfonsin was elected president, prosecuted six major generals and their equivalent in the Navy for the atrocities, the extermination of up to 30,000 Argentines. And the military proceeded to have five coup d'etats, killing lots of people, threatening others, and killing witnesses. And the next president, Carlos Menem, said, basta, enough. But even before he came and forgave, came into power and forgave all the generals and they got out of prison, they had a law of due obedience passed under the pressure of the coup d'etats, which basically said, if you were obeying orders, guess what? You can't be found guilty. Now, why is this a problem? Well, title talks about three phases of transitional justice. The first phase was right after World War II. And in that model, transitional justice was the model of the IMT at Nuremberg, the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, and its equivalent in the Far East, the Tokyo war crimes trials that put the leaders of the Nazi and the imperial Japanese regime on trial. And in this <coughs> model, the first phase, the first point that was made at Nuremberg is there's no such thing as a due obedience uh, defense. In other words, it's the concept of the illegal order. You cannot, you have the obligation, not even just the moral obligation, but the legal obligation to disobey a manifestly illegal order. A lot of people at uh, the Nazis on trial at Nuremberg said, look, if I did this, I'd be killed. Of course, these were the 24 leading members of the regime. You know, if they can get away with that kind of justification, uh, obviously everyone beneath them could. But at Nuremberg, they decided there's no such thing as uh, a legal, uh, uh, you know, obeying an order's defense. And then control law number 10, which was mentioned, and we're going to look at briefly later on in the course, created not only an international model of international justice, but also a domestic model. So you not only had the, the first Nuremberg trial of those 24 defendants, and a second series of important Nuremberg-like trials done by international prosecutions, also the four allied powers, Soviet Union, France, United Kingdom, uh, and the United States, uh, which, for example, prosecuted the Einsatzgruppen, the mobile bands that went and massacred Jews and other civilians behind the front lines on the Eastern Front, um, which resulted in killing roughly half of the people that were killed, civilians killed in the Holocaust. Then you had control number 10, where the German government prosecuted its own people. So you had this kind of gold standard model coming out of World War II in which initially they said we don't trust domestic trials because after World War I they had the domestic trial model and they didn't prosecute the Kaiser. They, did, they had a, two or three monkey trials. I think there was one conviction and there was no punishment more than a day in prison. So they tried transitional justice after World War I um, and they, didn't, they had a different model in World War II. Why did they have a different model in World War II? Number one, they didn't trust domestic models. So they started with the international criminal justice for prosecuting uh, the previous regime. And then in the latter stages converted to a domestic process as it was after it was clear this was a completely new regime. The leaders of the Nazi regime were all gone and basically demobilized. And there was no threat of armed intimidation. And in World War I, the Versailles Treaty blamed the entire World War I on Germany. And basically said Germany had to pay for everything that we suffered for. And that Germany was 100% responsible. And if you read that in the article, you have to say to yourself, 
I studied World War One. I. I took political science 3400 at Georgia State, or I took read. Um, I know Germany invaded Belgium and violated its neutrality and did expand the war, but obviously it's got to be a lot more complicated than that. And certainly it's very clear that there's a whole balance of power system that in terms of political science as opposed to law, uh, Germany's aggression in World War I was complicated by certain prior alliances that expanded the Balkan War into a major international war. But what they took from that at Versailles was to put enormous reparations. Historians disagree whether they were ter how terrible they were, but it was used by Hitler as an argument for mobilizing the German people against the Allies for the depression that had hit Germany and most of the world. Uh, in other words, it was the Versailles Treaty which blamed all of World War I just on the German people. Uh, when in fact, you know, the German people had very little to do with the decision of the dictatorship to expand the war by invading Belgium. So the gold plate standard also said we're not going to impose huge reparations on Germany. And Germany voluntarily, at its own accord, paid Israel uh, a fairly large sum for the Holocaust, but they weren't forced to do so. The second phase that's described in transitional justice was during the Cold War, and basically nothing happened. So you went from one extreme to the other. You, the incredible Nuremberg precedent, which has been cited again and again as the way to deal with major human, violent human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law in war or in domestic politics by a prior dictatorship, or for that matter, an elected government if it committed major violent human rights violations. Nuremberg is the way to go. And it's very clear that human rights lawyers have always said Nuremberg, 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 Nuremberg. A title's critique basically is one which says, if that's such a great model, how come they didn't follow it for 40 years? There was practically not a single case. There was no case of an international criminal tribunal until 1994 and 1995, when respectively the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda had ad hoc tribunals created by the UN Security Council. But there wasn't even that much domestic prosecution. Lieutenant William Calley of Georgia was prosecuted for the Milai massacre uh, in a military court in the United States. And I think he apologized for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, publicly a year ago. Anyone know? Two years ago. Uh, he was given, Cali was actually given a hero's welcome by Governor Jimmy Carter in what was probably a naked political act by Carter, one that's totally inconsistent with his record on human rights. And maybe, you know, he regretted that mistake and then embraced human rights as a result of that mistake. I don't know, that's speculation. But in any event, the Cold War, uh, international security trumped everything, having a firm dictatorships on the side of the United States. In the first half of the Cold War was the US foreign policy. Only in the latter stages were we encouraging democracy, often because these dictatorships were in trouble. And it also gave us a rhetorical argument for why we're superior, because uh, democracies were real democracies with elections, as we thought defined real democracies, were much more popular and much more effective than uh, popular dictatorships, what the Soviets called people's republics based on economic equality, which the United States meant, said meant everyone was equal, that is equally poor. The third phase began, as I mentioned, with these international tribunals right after the third wave ended. And title says that was neither Nuremberg nor the Cold War. It was neither this gold standard model of an international tribunal that vo uh, avoided economic hardships on a people that prosecuted individuals and held them individually responsible for their criminal liability, as opposed to World War I, which imposed huge economic sanctions on an entire country and blamed the country and its people, especially its people, for the actions of its government. So it was the group approach in World War I. It was the liberal in the, liberal in the political science sense of individual rights and individual responsibility, so individual liability for criminal responsibility. In the third phase, we've come up with all of these new mechanisms 
that do not have either the gold standard model or the do-nothing model. And in the third phase, <coughs> we've had uh, ad hoc tribunals, the ICTY and the ICTR for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and more recently, the ICC. Now, you might wonder whether isn't the ICC the gold standard model? The International Criminal Court, which was created in 1998, got enough ratifications to come into force in 2001, and has just begun its first trials. And maybe over time, if the ICC does establish its jurisdiction, which is not as extensive as Nuremberg, Nuremberg, like these two ad hoc tribunals, have a jurisdiction which says, we can take any case we want. Whereas the International Criminal Court has a jurisdictional principle that says, we'll only take cases if the domestic country is unwilling or unable <coughs> to prosecute. So it'll never be as gold standard as the Nuremberg was. Well, how is it operating so far? It's got four major cases, all from Africa. Does that seem plausible? Doesn't sound like the gold standard to me. Doesn't sound like there's a universal jurisdiction where likes are be treated, being treated in a like manner. Yes, Africa has more international humanitarian law and violent human rights violations than any other continent. But is Africa the only continent? Obviously not. What country in North America might have committed major violent human rights violations? Us. Us, the US. Right? I mean, Abu Ghraib proved torture. I don't think there's any question about it. Should the president be held liable before the International Criminal Court? Well, as a from a pragmatic point of view, that might be a catastrophe because the United States might go to war with the ICC, literally. Um, but it also would lead the United States to say that would be a politically motivated prosecution. And this is the problem in the third phase when you're not dealing with sometimes called a Nicomachean struggle between, not Nicomachean, uh, what's the word? Um, Manichaean struggle between good and evil. <coughs> like Hitler's evil, allies are good, right? Well, we firebombed, napalm bombed, and did a few bad things ourselves. But anyway, you know, in, in our own narrative, we were the good guys and Hitler was the bad guys, and that was certainly the case for most of the strategy. Maybe if we did a few war crimes and we weren't prosecuted, we won't talk about that. Uh, but it was good versus evil. In most countries, is one side good and the other side evil? Well, in Argentina, yes. Although some of the people in the opposition in Argentina were also Marxist guerrillas. But the vast majority of those killed and murdered were not. But in a lot of situations, a lot of civil wars, certainly, they're terrible, violent human rights violations, violations of international humanitarian law by everybody. Child soldiers killing civilians, uh, raping, looting, and stealing, you name it. Um, and these people are still around. Second, they don't have good court systems. We didn't trust Germany's courts to, to try the Nazi leaders in the first phase of the first era of transitional justice. And that's a, a wealthy country with Reichstag, rule of law tradition of 100 years dating to Prussia. So in this third phase, what's happened is you've had a whole series of types of models that have emerged. Most importantly, truth commissions or in South Africa's model, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which says, instead of prosecution, or in the case of Sierra Leone, which had a Truth Commission and prosecutions, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, we're going to hold hearings to find out what happened. And in the South African case, if we are convinced that you've told the whole story, we will give you immunity from prosecution. So in this third phase, we have an eclectic combination of pragmatic efforts to figure out how to deal with the tortures problem. And in this process, you might say it's a Hegelian dialectic. Hegel's the philosopher who 
we talked about thesis, antithesis, and synthesis that Marx used to develop his theory that feudalism, the thesis, would be juxtaposed historically with capitalism, uh, which would produce as a synthesis scientific socialism. But anyway, what you have here is uh, the thesis is the gold standard of Nuremberg and then the do-nothing of the Cold War and the synthesis right now is this eclectic combination of approaches to dealing with justice in transitions. And Hegel said, and Marx did not apply Hegel the way Hegel said he should be applied, that the synthesis becomes the new thesis. And I think that's very clear that as we have wars around the world, 40 on average in the world at any given time, how legal systems do deal with war, which is the ultimate crime in terms of mass destruction, is going to be uh, interesting. It's also going to be crucial in trying to figure out how to build peace if the goal is to use the rule of law, but the practice is going to be coming up with this pragmatic series of efforts deal, dealt with by reason of local circumstance to figure out who will be prosecuted, if anyone, whether you have a truth commission, whether you rely on customary forms of justice, which goes back thousands of years or hundreds of years, that is, informal, non-state approaches deal on the basis of community, such as the Gagacha system, which is used in Rwanda. Okay, well, we're out of time, and we'll be sure to get the best way binder, and we'll begin our reading of uh, international criminal law. Okay, so he won't have it till Friday. I'm sorry about that, but you can pick it up on Friday. Thanks for that. Sorry? So Best Way Coffee Shop's on Decatur Street. Just up the road, uh, going towards Peachtree Street. Just north of Peachtree Center.